Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, the podcast designed to simplify the complex job of managing and leading people. And our goal today, as always, is to share at least one proven business practice or discipline that will help you build a more sustainable, profitable, and purpose-driven company. Our guest today, we have not known each other that long, but I feel like our relationship has a lot of depth to it already. He's a, you know what, if there was a new world's most interesting man, this guy would probably be in the running for that. So I'm going to give you some background about him, my, my adjectives, intense, passionate, but balanced. To the outside, he would be viewed a fitness freak, but in reality, he just thinks he's doing what, like I do, what we should do to take care of ourselves. And at the most elementary and foundational level, he is a one of those, I would call, very natural, excellent leaders. He is Bill Whistler. He's the chairman of Shook Construction. Bill, welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. Uh, thanks, Ed. Appreciate being here. Yeah, I'm glad to have this time together with you. Would you tell our audience about Shook's history and how you came to join the company and and then became the CEO and now the chairman? Sure. A uh, company started in 1926. A guy by the name of Charles H. Shook decided he, this world needed another construction company. He was a civil engineer and got started and was, you know, very successful and hardworking. And let's see, early 70s, no, yeah, early 60s, rather, He's at uh, lunch, you know, business lunch with all his cronies sitting around the table, dies of a heart attack. Had no succession and continuity plan. His board of directors was his family. We have the old board books and it's, you know, his wife and her mom and dad sitting around the dining room table and, yeah. you know, around Christmas time. They just had one board meeting a year. And so luckily for me, for I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you had this not happened. Four of Mr. Shook's key employees approached Mrs. Shook and offered to buy the company. And they did so. And ever since then, this company has remained non-family owned, but privately held. Okay. And when did you join the company? 1978. Okay. And what was your job when you joined them? So I, you know, I came looking for a co-op job. I was a freshman at University of Cincinnati and UC was really good at finding you a job if you wanted to work in Cincinnati and not so good if you wanted to work, work in Dayton and save a little money and live at home because I was from Dayton. And so I had labored for a painting contractor, commercial painting contractor for two summers. Yep. And I asked that general manager to get me an interview with a couple of general contractors and he did so. He did so with one of our big competitors now. And I had the greatest interview anybody's ever had in the history of interviewing. It was my first one. I knew I blew it out of the water. It was only <laughs> afterwards that I realized it was only 90 seconds in the lobby and the guy was just trying to get rid of me. <laughs> and so I followed that up by driving across town. And as I was walking in the front door of Shook's office, 
there was this guy walking in the back door. And it's one of those deals where, man, that guy looks familiar. And he said the same thing, but he lived north of town. I lived south of town. We really didn't have any common ground. And he finally said, well, what got you interested in construction in the first place? I said, well, really, I, I always thought I wanted to be an architect. But in high school, I entered this design competition and I was on the drafting table back then for like eight hours a day. And I quickly realized I could not be inside anywhere for eight hours a day. Yeah. And I thought construction might be a better fit. He said, well, how did you do in that competition? I said, well, I was lucky enough to win it. And he said, well, I knew the answer to that question because I was one of the judges. That makes sense. That's where we met. So Clarence hired me, Clarence Bittner, on the spot in April of 1978. He was a senior project manager at the time. He eventually became CEO and chairman. And, you know, I followed well behind him, about 20-year lag in my career. And I've been fortunate enough to have something next to do every step along the way. I wrote down one more adjective for you as a visionary. That occurred to me as soon as you said architect. That's yeah, you you have a great capacity to see what is not yet in existence, but what could be. And I, I know you've done that for the organization. You know, all of our inner listeners, I, I know, intellectually understand what construction is, but I'm not sure they really understand the breadth and scope of the business. So how, where does Shook fit into the world of general contractors? That's a fair question. So in the United States, there's literally hundreds of thousands of construction companies. It's one of the easiest businesses to go into. You just borrow your brother-in-law's truck and your brother's shovel, and you're one of our competitors at a very low cost model, right? So that said, we're about number 250 in the country, right? So I call us a fairly large regional contractor. You know, our revenue streams between 300 and $350 million worth of work a year in place. Yeah. And how would that compare with maybe some of our listeners will think about a Turner or somebody at that scope? Where would they compare uh, in revenues? You know, they're probably more in the, well, Turner has probably got at least another zero, maybe two zeros on yeah. the end of their revenue stream. So there are some extremely large companies that are effect- really international companies. Yep. You know, Turner's a German company branded as Turner uh, domestically and here in the U.S. And they they knock it out of the park internationally, do tons of work. But yeah, so we do 350 million, you know, Turner might do 30, you know, I don't know, they might do th- 3 billion, something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, somewhere between 3 and 30, I would guess. Yeah, yeah right. I've a full disclosure to our audience. I'm on the board of advisors for the board of directors. And that's kind of an interesting um, arrangement. We're going to talk a little bit about that in in a little later. But I I want to ask another question about where Shook finds itself, because from my perspective, it now appears to me that while you're a very, you know, solid and you could even argue old company by age, right. you're behaving very much like a growth company and, and a company that's, I kind of feel like you've reinvented yourself. And I'm, I'm wondering if one, if you'd agree with that assessment that you've somehow reinvented yourself to stay not only relevant, but to be in high demand. But then if that's true, when did that happen and how did it happen? It's happened several times since I've been here. I mean, I've I've spent 42 years with this company, and I've seen this evolve and change, you know, six or seven different times. 
I've always felt we are in a very competitive marketplace. And so that's why you got to lean into it. And you've always got to be looking for a, another competitive advantage. You can't play on your heels. You can't even play flat footed. You got to be leaning into it all the time. So we're always looking for, you know, what is the value statement and how do we provide value to our clients that makes it easy to sell? And if we keep doing what we've been doing, well, everybody else is going to catch on and then we don't have any competitive advantage. So you're exactly right. Ed. Did you intentionally try to take the organization under your leadership through a, a, a reinvention, a, a redefining, if you will, of your value proposition or, is, or did it, has it just happened organically? I'm, I'm curious if it was intentional or not. Well, we've been very, uh, I guess, diligent and purposeful about doing strategic planning yep. for I don't know, the last 30 years at least. But you know how that can go. It can get really blasé and it can re- get really check the box. Yeah. So we make sure we always have, have an outside facilitator and we change up that facilitator every two or three years. We're always looking for a new one. And the facilitator has a lot to do with that. And the strategic planning effort in and of itself helps you kind of, I always say, look for a little bit different heading, right? We may be, you know, 240 degrees east. That's our heading, you know, when we set off in this original strategic plan. And then some, something happens in the world, COVID-19, 9-11, blah, blah, blah. You name it. And it's like, wait, I mean, we need to vector over and get back to, you know, northeast 219. We need to adjust on the fly. You've uh, chosen some segments of the marketplace to serve more than others. And uh, I'm trying to I'm going to see how well I've done my my homework (laughs) and being a board member. So there's there's education. Right. There is health care. Right. Is there government? There's industrial. Industrial. Okay. Right. Okay. And then the big one is water resources. Okay. And so were those chosen because of relatively um, predictable cycles and, and relatively stable kinds of investments? Is that the thinking there or, or was there just the absence of competition? Well, it, it's the former. Okay. And really what happened was back in the day, we were doing all those things and then anything else that would fly in the door. You know, I called it the shotgun approach, man. If something flew in our door, we were shooting at it. Yep. And it was ridiculous. I mean, we <laughs> If anybody had a job to bid, hey, let's bid it, let's go after it. And we finally said, we're not successful doing that. You can't be really great at everything. So we, then we said, well, what are we really great at? And we said, out of all these things, we were doing churches, we were doing all sorts of stuff. We said, out of all that stuff, what are we really good at? And the answer to that question depends on our people. What are our specific different people really good at? And it came down to healthcare and education and industrial and water resources and a couple others, actually. And then we said, out of all those, which ones are likely to be sustainable? Okay. So it doesn't matter if we're really good at it. If, if somebody is not going to need that in three years, well, then we don't need to be really good at it. So, again, healthcare in this country, when you get sick, it's really important for you to find really great healthcare. So you're passionate about that. We still value education in this country, right? And we still value walking into a bathroom and flushing the toilet and being able to wash our hands, right? So we go back to that basic principles and we say, okay, likely to be sustainable. And so those are going to be good things to be really good at over time. And that decision in and of itself is probably the best one we've made in the last 20, 25 years. 
you're geographically dispersed. You're doing mm-hmm. work in Ohio. You're doing work in North Carolina. You're doing work in Indiana. Right. Did you follow clients or did you go to markets? Ge- you know, geographically, you said, oh, we want to be there. We did a little bit of both. Okay. Uh, primary mover was client driven. Okay. You know, we had a retail client. There was a time when we did a lot of retail work and they took us to Indianapolis and actually our specialty contractors who worked for us after that program was built out for that particular retailer. They said, man, we want you to stay in Indianapolis. You're a trustworthy GC. We really like you guys. And so we said, well, let's stand something up, see if it can see if it can work. And, you know, we're over there now 25 years did the same thing in Kokomo, Indiana, did the same thing in Richmond, had clients that just loved us, wanted us to stay, went for a job and we just stayed. Did the same thing in Cleveland, yeah. been up there over 30 years. We did it differently, though, in Raleigh, North Carolina. That's where we didn't specifically follow a client, but we said, listen, that's a growing population. Water resources is population centric. It's a wonderful place to live. We can probably attract really good talent. So we put all those ideas together and we stood up an office in Raleigh, North Carolina. And again, it's been a good long-term decision for us because you mentioned Ohio and Indiana. I've grown up in Ohio my whole life, riding my bike over to Indiana. I mean, it's the Midwest. I love it. But the population is decreasing. Yeah. And each again, each of our markets are population centric. So that's not great for business. So what do we have to do? We need to at least bolt on some new market regions where the population is growing. Makes perfect sense. The story you told about the uh, founder and his untimely death probably explains why you have some of the governance you have as an organization today. Right. Right. And so I want to I want to dig on that one for just a little bit. So. It seems to me that watching the process of the transition of you moving from CEO to chairman and Chris Halpy taking over in in your place was about as it was frankly it was boring. Yeah, as planned. Yeah, as planned. And <laughs> and and I mean that with with all the respect and affection I can provide in that. So it's it compared to most organizations, it was a non-event. Right. That was the goal. Yeah. So was that learned? Was that something that was iteratively created or is that something you brought to the table? How did that happen? It was learned behavior. We actually have gone through three or four or five of those over my lifetime. Right. And I think every time we do it, we do it a little bit better. But we learned long time ago that you have to start the process at least a thousand days out, like three years. I mean, we I started with Chris and that in our leadership team three years ago in earnest, I started thinking about it the day I took over as CEO. Right. But I knew, you know, three years from the end, I needed to to make a decision on who a successor was going to be. And that's all fine and good. But then I have to get buy-in from the balance of senior leadership who might have not been selected. Right. It's the leader. And that's doesn't always plan out very well. But I got that buy-in, and then we keep keep getting buy-in throughout the organization. And then we talk about how you know how are we going to slowly offload my direct reports onto not only my successor but perhaps others in the organization yep. to try and make the org chart work better. So, uh, and the goal is always 
that when that day comes, it is a non-event. It's no speed bump that everybody anticipates it, knows it's going to happen. And then at the end of the day, they go, well, this wasn't any different. This is great. You know, they may not say this is great, but they're thinking this is great. Yeah. It's not because change is hard for a lot of people. Well, in some respects, I think there's there are at least times in an organization's life cycle where when the change happens, if people can register it as a non-event. Right. It's really it's really powerful. It's huge. Right. Yeah. It's exactly right. It's like, oh, my gosh, everything's fine. Oh, it's just like it was yesterday. Huh. I guess I'm going to get a paycheck tomorrow. Yeah. I always refer to officiating in athletic events. If it's really good, you don't notice it. That's <laughs> exactly right. Very, very good analogy. Right. It, it, yeah. And and probably in transition for organizations, if you don't notice it, if it's really right, at least for an organization that's that, that's been as successful as yours, when when you can make that transition and it, and you don't lose momentum or people, that's that's really something. Right. All right. Let's let's talk a little bit about delegation. Okay. I I'm thinking about watching your style and. Engineers are notorious for being meticulous and thorough and paying attention to detail. And I think you could argue with those descriptions of of engineers, there's very likely to be a bias towards micromanagement. Right. Is that fair? Absolutely. Okay. All right. So, and, and in your world, most of the mistakes, I think, have a couple of zeros after them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Painful. Yeah. So it's not like if that if that foundation's off by three inches, it can make a world of difference. Yeah. I always say we don't put any demolition costs in our new building construction. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so given that, you strike me as not naturally a micromanager. I, you strike me as somebody who's very much results driven. And the fact is that if you, if I work for you, it'd say, here's the outcome. Here's what I'm expecting. What questions do you have? I'll be around if you need me and I'll check in with you, but, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to babysit you on this and, and unless yeah. you demonstrate or ask for and, and indicate you want that. Right. Is that fair analysis of the way you operate? It is. And I've gotten better over time, you know, and I think you get better over time with humility, <laughs> right? Age has a tendency to make you humble. And, you know, I learned quite a long time ago that I'm not the sharpest blade in the drawer. And we've got a lot of talent around here. And and my job is to find the best team members, assemble the best team, get them to rally in the same direction and have fun getting fantastic results. And when I do that, I've done my job. Now, the, the opposite of that is me saying, well, I'm the sharpest blade in the drawer. I'm the smartest guy here. Well, I'm, I'm just going to do it myself and get it done. Well, I, you know, I'd have crappy results because I'm probably a B minus, right? <laughs> My goal is to have A triple plus. Is your organization one that, is your industry even one where when you lose some talent that it's just accepted and assumed that you're going to have somebody step into that role from inside the organization, or is it, is it an industry? Is it a, or is your organization one where you've been very comfortable reaching outside of the organization to find somebody that's got the right, not only skills, but more importantly, the right fit for the organization, or as you, as you indicated, bring something to the tape team that we, that we've been lacking. So have you done both well, or is it, is there a bias to do one over the other? There's, always been a bias in this company to grow talent from within. Okay. Okay. But I mean, a bias to a fault. 
because we are afraid of bringing in somebody from the outside who might upset our culture. We hold our culture very close to our heart. And so, and I said, we, we did that to a fault. And only in the last, I'd say, five or six years have we been open to saying, and that's one of the reasons you're on our board. We are looking for outside perspective. We always say we're inbred. Our, our eyes are a little bit too close. Uh, and, and we need outside perspective and outside help. And so now we have started hiring uh, a blend of, I mean, we had like 30 co-ops this summer, but we've hired 20 people. Okay. Sure. Senior folks from the outside. So now, you know, now we're getting a nice, healthy blend. And our people that have been here for 15, 20, 30 years have finally come to understand that we need good talent and that bringing in somebody from the outside is not going to hurt their chances of being here for another 15 years. You know, I figured out a long time ago, I'm not the sharpest blade in the drawer, but my job is rather to find the best talent in the organization to throw at an issue and get them fired up, focused, yep. headed in the right direction, and set up an environment where, where they can have fun solving the problem and getting to the finish line and becoming successful. That that gives our company and it gives all our people a lot more value than me thinking that I can solve it on my own. And frankly, the results are going to be a lot less or not quite as good if I try to do it all by myself and, and beyond that, I'm, now I've limited what the organization can do overall. So, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, we don't have uh, another half an hour to talk about stuff because I, you're a, a complex man who lives simply. Uh, that's the way I'm going to describe it. And so there's so many. I've been, called, I've been called worse. Well, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on in this package folks. And, and if you have the chance to meet Bill, you'll, you'll know why I'm saying that. The COVID crisis, as I've watched my clients respond to it and all have done so and done so, I think, really remarkably well. I'm curious about, you know, you have office and you practice social distancing. I'm sure people have been working from home, what have you. But I'm curious about in the field, how has this affected the work that you do? It's really hard. If you can imagine you go out to cut your grass, right, and you put yeah. your mask on and, and maybe you wear glasses, and you, and you take about 10 steps and now your glasses are all fogged up and the mask is really hot and it's itchy and it's scratchy. Well, just, you know, think about working in North Carolina when it's 100 degrees and you're 50 feet in the air and you've been working for eight hours and you got two more hours to go. It's been really tough on our people. But construction workers are resilient. Yeah. You know? And I was just talking to one of our folks and. He said, you know, you can fuss about things and just about the time you do that, God will give you something really tough to f and say, you, you thought it was bad then, right? And that's the way it is. I mean, you know, it might be hot and scratchy, but it's not 20 below zero and we're not don't have sleet hitting us in the face. So our people have sucked it up with grace. And it doesn't mean they haven't fussed and not wanted to work a day here and a day there, but they have sucked it up. So, And that's across the country and not just our company. But Do you envision work being fundamentally different after this crisis is over? The, do, you, do, you, do you see something remaining behind in terms of the way you're doing work today that will be become the norm going forward? I think so. And it's been talked about a lot, but, you know, working from home, you know, we have a lot of folks who are static. They're sitting in an office, churning out a deliverable. And some people can do that very well from home. 
And frankly, some people can't. Right. You know, and my concern is, you know, how do you measure efficiency? Right. And wouldn't you wouldn't like to have a snapshot of a year ago and an efficiency, you know, metric and then be able to snap it again today and say, really, how efficient are we? Because you, it's all conjecture, you know, when you start talking about people's opinions and all that good stuff. So I think that'll change. I think uh, we as an industry across all industries really will accept more home based workforce. But what's the blend going to look like? Yep. And 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 then how do we find the opportunities to collaborate and which people need that spark from others to be able to to, exactly right. to, to do their jobs better? Yeah, there, there's going to be right now there's art to that and there'll probably be some fundamentals right. that will emerge. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is mentoring, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, how do you develop a relationship? How do you, you know, teach on the fly? How do you model great behavior? You know, I mean, that that. Our young people, those are the folks I'm most concerned about. You're a passionate man. I mentioned that at the beginning. I, I, I can't see you doing anything halfway. Is that DNA? Is that nurtured? Where did where does that come from in you? That's, it's really one of your most remarkable traits, I think. Being raised by Depression-era babies. My dad was born in 25, and my mom was born in 26. And they knew how to work hard. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? They were proud. I mean, and they didn't. And I was thinking before this podcast, you know, I was thinking, you know, I can't ever remember a day when they said, Billy, you need to grow up and work hard. They never said that, but they modeled the behavior. Yeah. And they got up every day and they hit it hard. They didn't whine. They didn't, you know, they thought they were, they thought they were the most wealthy people in the world. And, you know, if their combined income was $40,000 one year, that would have been like a big uh-huh. year. A lot. Oh, and but they were happy as clams, you know, and I think it's just being fortunate enough to have been born into a family that modeled good behaviors. I wonder if there's any DNA or if that's strictly a nurtured thing, a a learned behavior. That's that 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 would be interesting to know. Well, I'm I'm raising an adopted daughter and I can tell you the DNA is important. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to nurture all I can. It, it doesn't always cut the mustard. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Our time's about up, so I've I've got to be respectful for our listeners and let let them off the hook and not make them stay longer than than they're supposed to. We always promise our listeners a one proven and practical idea that that our guests believe if 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 they can only do this one thing, it's probably going to improve the chances of somebody being able to operate a business that's going to be more successful and sustainable, or if they're a manager that they can re- lead a team that would be a better team than it otherwise would. What's that one piece of advice you'd give our listeners, Bill? So when I started as CEO, I asked myself that question. What's, what's my thing going to be? And, you know, I did a lot of study and a lot of, you know, just thinking and I thought, you know, it's so cool. We build buildings and treatment plants and you can drive down the road and they cast a shadow. That's some cool stuff. But, you know, so does all our other market competition. Right. And so I said, well, what's going to set us apart? And what I realized was, is that everything we do serves a higher purpose. Right. So, you know, we just don't, you know, build treatment plants. We make clean water. And if, if you were living in Somalia, I'll tell you right now, you value clean water. If your water gets shut off in Columbus for a day, you value 
clean water. Oh, yeah. So so once we un- had got our folks to understand that they not only build treatment plants, but they make clean water. They don't only build hospitals, but they create healing environments, that place where they're going to take mom when she's sick and ready to die. We, we create educational environments that are going to nurture our children. Once we get all our people to realize that they truly serve a higher purpose, they're walking with a little pep in their step and they're proud. And when you have proud people, they're productive. And when they're productive, they're profitable. He's Bill Whistler. He's the chairman of Shook Construction, Dayton, Ohio. And he's, uh, he's become a man that I hold a great deal of respect for and count him as a friend. So I'm, I so appreciate you taking time, Bill, to be with us today on the Ed Epley Experience. If people have questions, would like to reach you, what's the best way for them to, to do that? Sure. And my email is B-W-H-I-S-T-L-E-R, B-Whistler, at S-H-O-O-K construction.com. If you really want to get him fired up, start talking about riding a bicycle. And they'll talk to you for a while about that, too. Bill, as always, it's great to spend time with you. I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, Me too. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's the Epley, E-P-P-L-E-Y, group.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills.